Uh, this morning we're looking at Daniel's 70 weeks, part one of two. It's a two-part of this one. Next time round we're going to look at the division of the 70 weeks. We're not ha- looking at that division today. But we're looking at the first um, verses 21 to 23 of chapter 9 of Daniel. Let me just remind you where we are with this chapter 9 of Daniel. Last time we saw that whilst the prophet Daniel, who by now was an old man in his 80s, he was reading the prophecy of, of Jeremiah, it's just a few books away, backwards, he read about God's promise to return the Jews to Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity. That revelation launched Daniel into penitent prayer with him acknowledging the sins of the people, the Jews, and also acknowledging his own sins. This is a man of God, by the way. Let me just remind you, he was a godly man. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, who was without sin, I don't think you'll find anyone in the Bible as godly as Daniel. There's nothing negative said about him anywhere in the Bible. And yet... He still prayed for forgiveness for the sins of the people and he didn't exclude himself. He wasn't just humouring God, he was genuinely praying for forgiveness. And he was praying for forgiveness for the things they'd done wrong, their transgressions against God that caused them to be brought into captivity in the first place. It's a sorry story when you read about it in Jeremiah and in other books of the Bible. Right from the time that God delivered the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt, what did they do? How did they show their gratitude to God? How about they made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped the golden calf? Can you believe it? Having been delivered from Egypt, God, he separated the Red Sea, provided a corridor for them to walk through to safety and the sea then closed on Pharaoh and his troops. They saw that they had uh, a pillar of cloud which guided them by day, a pillar of fire by night. They even had shoes that never wore out. God thought of everything. Even so, their history is one of rebelling against God, worshipping the idols of the other nations and even going with the people, making relationships with those people, with the other nations, the heathen. And so, after many warnings from God, they went into captivity, Babylonian captivity. But the time, time was nearly up. The 70 years was nearly up and Daniel came to that realisation as an old man, when he was reading the prophecy of Jeremiah. And as I said last time, and this is by way of encouragement, don't think that you've read it all in the Bible. Don't think you know it all. Um, I know from my own experience, there are things that I may have read many times, and then one day I'll read it for the umpteenth time, and it really hits me in a way that it never hit me before. And that's, that's God speaking to you, isn't it? Uh, in his time, in his way. 
And there's always some precious, something new, something precious for you to read in the Bible. Read it regularly and feed and feast upon the truth. And it will do your soul the world of good. Daniel was praying for the restoration of the Jews to their homeland, not because they deserved it, they didn't, but for the Lord's sake, in accordance with God's love and mercy. And again, I've already made mention of this before I prayed this morning. Daniel, he just read in the prophecy of Jeremiah that that 70 years was, he'd done his arithmetic, He'd worked out that the 70 years was nearly up and that they'd soon be delivered. And um, But even so, he prayed precisely for that, for that deliverance. That's a good example of praying biblically, praying in accordance with God's will. You can only do that when you're reading the scriptures though. And that brings us to today's consideration. Even whilst Daniel was in sackcloth, and ashes and directing his cries towards heaven, the angel Gabriel was sent to him. I'll read again our verses for consideration this morning, just four verses, starting at verse 21. Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation, And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city, to finish the transgression. Count these through now. There's six things going on in verse 24. Right, so, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision, and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Daniel was greatly loved by God we're told in those verses there we're told that he was greatly loved by God that reminds us of Christians if you're a Christian you are greatly loved by God how, how great does God love you how much does he love you rather well that's an easy one to answer isn't it just look at the cross that says it all God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us Calvary love. Uh, That's not just the love of Christ, it is the love of Christ, but it's the love of the triune God being manifest at Calvary's cross. And I I challenge anybody anywhere in the world to give an example of love that is greater than that manifestation of love at the cross. And let's let's extend that thought for a minute here. I'm going off track already, but... um, not only is that the greatest example of love, the love of God at the cross, but also what else do we see at the cross? God's mercy, his grace, his justice, peace. God, uh, Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. 
We see all of these things at the cross. Take away the cross, none of us would know anything about God. Or we wouldn't know much, would we? And so really, the cross, and what happened at the cross, is how God has really shown himself, all his attributes, in such an amazing way to each one of us. There's nobody who, who, who understands God except the Christian, really. Someone who has um, had their eyes opened to see what went on at the cross and their, their, their hearts open to understand these things. No one understands God like the Christian. We, we understand God, God our Father, not just God, but our, our Father, and we understand the attributes, those wonderful attributes of God, All as I've already said, his love, his mercy, his grace, the peace of God. And that's all because of the cross and the Lord Jesus Christ laying down his life, pouring out his blood. The blood of God poured out at Calvary's cross. How can we get our heads around that, that the blood of God was poured out at the cross? But that's what we read in the scriptures. So, Daniel was greatly loved by God and uh, if you're a Christian, doesn't matter who you are, from the least of the Christians to the greatest, you are greatly loved by God. Make no doubt, make, don't be in any doubt about that whatsoever. Daniel's prayer was answered even before he'd finished. Dear Christian, do you have a testimony of a very, very speedy answer to prayer from your Heavenly Father? Forgive me if you've heard this a million times, but for the sake of those who haven't, the, 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 the example that always comes to mind with me is in that horrible classroom in London when I was a supply teacher and uh, I, the agency sent me to the worst school in London, I think. Oh, I'm getting, a, I'm getting a nervous breakdown just thinking about it now, all these years later. Standing in that classroom one day, I didn't know the names of any of these... Uh, teenagers, year nine I think they were, uh, I didn't know any of them and they knew that and they milked it for all it was worth and uh, I had boys throwing things at each other, throwing things out the window, we were upstairs somewhere, they were lobbing things out the window, fights going on in the classroom, it was mayhem and I just couldn't cope, I couldn't cope and I just turned round with my back to the class, how long does it say, how long does it take to say, not out loud, but in your head, how long does it take to say, Lord, I can't cope, please help me? Because that's all I did. I just turned around and I said that. And I'm not kidding you, that classroom room went quiet there and then. At least for the end, for the remainder of that lesson, I had an opportunity to recover from the from um, what I, that ordeal, it was awful. That was an answer to prayer, I've got no doubt about it. I'm not a charismatic or anything like that, you know that by now, but um, I certainly believe that God can and does answer, answer prayers quickly, you bet. Even before you've said your amen, you bet. And he's done it with me. That's one example that just comes to mind, but I've got others. And if you've got, if you're a Christian, you've got examples as well. 
And the greatest example of answer to prayer is that time when you pray to God for forgiveness for the very first time. And he heard your prayer and he forgave you your sins. And you knew Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. So we've all got a testimony, haven't we, as Christians, of God answering our prayers. He is a prayer hearing God. Let's come back to this passage before I forget what I'm talking about. What followed was a remarkable answer to prayer, way beyond what Daniel could have ever imagined. Again, maybe you've sought the Lord in prayer and not only has he answered your prayer, but he's answered way beyond what you ever imagined, what you ever thought to ask for. And uh, that happens, doesn't it? Normally, when you're in a mess or, or things around you seem to just be going so terribly wrong and you think, well, humanly speaking, there's no answer to this. It's a complete and utter mess or my life's a mess or whatever it is. But, next thing you know, there's an answer to that prayer. You know it's an answer to prayer because it's got God's hallmarks all over it. And we see that at the cross, don't we, again? What a mess that was at the cross. But it was done. What was done there? Wicked men taking the sinless Son of God, having put him through a kangaroo court, having beaten him, scourged him, plucked out his beard, made him unrecognisable. Then they nailed him to a cross, lifted him up to die on that cross, that centre cross. But what do we read in Acts chapter 2? It was all done according to the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God's eternal decree. And with his stripes, you dear Christian, are healed. How wonderful that is. So I'm just saying that because that's an example of God. Uh, when things seem to be just so terribly wrong, hopelessly wrong, God is at work and things will work out for his glory, ultimately. And that's a great comfort to me because I happen to think this world is in a mess. I don't think I'm on my own thinking that. An utter mess. But I know who's in charge. I know his, who is seated on his throne And I know who's coming again in judgment. Let's have a look at the answer to the prayer that Daniel got. So remember, he's praying for forgiveness for the sins of the people, forgiveness for his own sins, and let's see what answer he gets. Even before he's finished, Gabriel um, is sent. First of all, there's a We have a time frame here of 70 weeks. Look again at verse 24. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. A time frame of 70 weeks. Or 77s, 77s. I'll explain that as far as best as I can in a minute. Uh, that was given to the Jewish people 
and Jerusalem for certain things to be fulfilled, these 70 weeks or 77s. And we'll be looking at that, not today, what we're, we'll look at what would be sealed, uh, what would happen in those 70 weeks, but then there's a division of those 70 weeks or 77s we'll look at next time. 70 weeks or 77s means 70 times 7 periods. You've got to be pretty good at your 7 times table for this, if nothing else. So 70 weeks or 77s means 70 times 7 periods of time. 70 times 7, what's that? I'm going to try and do this without looking at my notes. I should be able to do it. What I didn't tell you, when I was uh, a teacher, I actually taught maths. So 7 times 7, 49, and stick a zero on the end of it. 490. 490 periods of time that was given for certain things to happen. 490 periods of time. Now then, it seems the obvious thing is that it's 490 years. How about that? 490 years. But then, why not just say 490 years instead of all this 70 weeks or 70 periods, 70 times 7 periods? Why do we have to get into 7 times table here? Why can't they just say 490? Or why couldn't Daniel or Gabriel say 490 years? Because that word years is used. It's not as if it's not used in the book of Daniel. Look at verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation. 70 years. Okay. So... There's your years, as I say. They, they, years is a word that we see not only in the book of Daniel, but in the same chapter. But for some reason, we've got 70 times 7 periods of time. Let's stick with that for now. When we look at verse 24, we can see that there would be six great accomplishments in the period of 70 weeks or 77s taking them in order uh, as they are given. Let's have a look at the first thing that we see here in the 70 weeks, whatever that 70 weeks is. Okay. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression. That's the first thing out of that seven, six things there. To finish the transgression. Transgression means rebellion against God. That's what it is. It means waving your fist towards heaven. It means refusing to have God rule over you. And it seems so, so uh, top, uh, it's so much for today, Psalm 2. It's, I, I, I come to it every week at the moment, Psalm 2. Have a look at Psalm 2 in your own time. It's so relevant to, to today. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together so they conspire together against the Lord and against his Christ. The leaders of the world conspire against God and his Christ, his anointed, saying, 
Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Let's break free from God. We don't need God. That's what the leaders are doing. And of course, everyone follows suit. They listen to their leaders. Isn't it amazing? We all moan about our leaders, but we seem to do everything they, they say. They say jump and we say how high. And we just do it. Because it's a world in rebellion against God. Here in this land and everywhere. And this rebellion against God, this refusal to have God rule over you, this is precisely what led to the Babylonian captivity in the first place with the Jews. The New Testament tells us that they were, that we, rather, we are all by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath, that's in Ephesians chapter 2. We too are hostile towards God. It wasn't just the Jews of old. That becomes obvious when you can see that this world has no regard for God whatsoever. No interest in seeking to do the will of God. No interest in bowing the knee to King Jesus. Isaiah, speaking prophetically, said the following about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. He said this about over 700 years before Jesus came into the world. He was wounded for our transgressions. Wounded for our transgressions. This is what we're looking at in verse 24. Transgressions. Mind you, he was wounded for our transgressions. Who is the our? Everybody's transgressions? When Jesus was nailed to a cross, was he nailed on that cross? Did he lay down his life for people who go to their grave waving their fists towards heaven? Not at all. Not at all. All those who trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Their rebellion against God. Your rebellion against God. He was wounded for your transgressions if he is your Lord and your Saviour. So does that include you? Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was wounded for your transgressions at the cross? Are, or rather, or are you still, in a sense, waving your puny fist towards heaven? Because let me tell you, I was going to say don't take offence, but please do take offence if it is you. If you have not yet received Jesus as your saviour from sin, you are waving your fist towards heaven. Especially if you come to this church, because you hear this message every week. And if you still say no, if you're still saying, let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us, you are in rebellion against God. And that is not a good thing. Secondly, what else do we have in verse 24? Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. And to make an end of sins. As one might expect, God has very high standards for us to live by in accordance with his law. He makes no apologies for that. 
He doesn't dumb down his law for us. Why should he? God has extremely high standards and his expectations of us are not unreasonable. After all, his laws are what? When you go through the Ten Commandments, all those Ten Commandments, they can be summarised by two greater commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your, with your whole being. That's not unreasonable, is it? And the second great commandment is to love your neighbour as yourself. Again, not unreasonable at all. So, that is God's standards. Love. Love God, love our neighbour. Who can argue with that? The problem is that we all miss the mark and that is precisely what sin is, missing the mark. As the Apostle Paul said, all have sinned, all come short of the glory of God. God will not lower his standards. However, the good news is that Jesus made an end of sins at the cross when he who knew no sin, the sinless son of God, was made sin when he carried in his own body the sins of all who would trust in him. Just before Jesus died, he declared that he had made an end of sins when he said, it is finished. Do you believe that Jesus made an end of your sins at the cross by bearing them in his body? That's a serious question. I know the younger people have got their exams at the moment, so they're being asked serious questions on their exam papers, but none of those questions will be as serious as I've just managed to ask you now. Do you believe that Jesus made an end of your sins at the cross? The most serious question you will ever be asked. Thirdly, let's have a look what's third on this list in verse 24. He made an end of sins and then the next thing there and to make reconciliation for iniquity. Make reconcil- All these fancy words, they're not fancy to me, I guess I'm used to them, but I have to understand that some people would think, what on earth does that mean? Reconciliation and iniquity. Well, we're going to find out now. This is something that Jesus has achieved for all who are trusting in him Reconciliation is all about making peace. When people are reconciled to one another, they who were once enemies are brought close. There's peace that peace has been restored between them. That's reconciliation. Jesus has reconciled rebellious and sinful people, men, women, boys and girls, to a holy God. It doesn't seem possible, but again, with God all things are possible that we who wave our fists towards heaven, people who transgress God's law, are reconciled to him. And Jesus has made peace for us by the blood of his cross. Remembering that you come into this world in rebellion against God, can you nevertheless say that you now have peace with God through faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of talk about peace in this world. I don't know how many peace treaties have been made over the years. Uh, When I lived in India, I used to hand out 
Bible tracts to people there. My favourite tracts, and we still use them now, don't we? On um, We go out once a month, a few of us from this church, doing door-to-door work, and uh, we hand out Bible tracts about peace. Having peace with God. And in the tract that I used to hand out in India, it said how many or it estimated how many peace treaties have been made over the years. Hundreds of them. And none of them are worth the paper they're written on. Complete waste of time. And as as it, Jeremiah the prophet said, people say peace, peace, when there is no peace. And there really isn't any peace in this world. And you, if you think there is peace in this world, then I'm sorry to say... You've got your head buried in the sand right up to your ankles. No peace whatsoever. But we can have peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who has reconciled sinners to our thrice holy God. That is the, that is the only true peace there is. And it's a wonderful peace. You don't really need any other peace. You can be in the midst of a storm you can be thrown to the lions, you can be thrown in a fiery furnace, and it really doesn't matter if you have peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've seen that peace on the faces of people, elderly folk, in their deathbeds, in our hospital here on the island, speaking to them, and I've known that they're soon going to be departing and going into the presence of Jesus and beholding his beautiful face. And they've known that. And I've seen that peace on their faces. And that's a wonderful thing. It's beautiful. But that can only happen when you're a Christian. And you've got that relationship with God. And with his son Jesus Christ. Okay, let's let's go back to verse 24 now. We had to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in an everlasting righteousness. Here we go. Everlasting righteousness. Straight away you think of God. Everlasting, it's got to be God. To be righteous is the opposite of being a sinner. That's an easy way that um, of understanding that word righteous. The opposite of being a sinner. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are no longer clothed in your own filthy rags of self-righteousness because, you know, it's easy to do and we've all done it. We can all justify our actions very easily. Yeah, we can all justify our actions. Someone at the door. Yeah. Don't let them get away. Drag him in. Yeah, we can all justify our sinful actions, can't we? we we're very good at um, pointing the finger at others who do something wrong and they justify it in some way, but we need to point... Instead of pointing the finger at others, we need to point the finger at ourselves. We all do it. But the thing is, most of this world... They think they're going to um, be acceptable in God's sight by somehow justifying everything they've done. 
making excuses for all the things that they've done wrong. All the times they've broken God's laws. They think they can justify themselves before God. To justify yourself before God is to have a righteousness. The two words uh, go together. If you have a righteousness, you're being you're, you're justified, or at least you're seeking to be justified. The only way you can be justified before God is if you have a righteousness that is not your own. A righteousness that comes from God. Not your own filthy rags of righteousness, but the righteousness of God. How does that happen, I wonder? How can you stand before God justified with a righteousness that is not your own? When even now, as a sinner, the day will not go by without you having some inappropriate thought or maybe saying a word out of place, being sharp with someone, or just doing something plain wrong. Even as a Christian, you know, the Apostle Paul, what did he say? O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Back to Jesus every time. It has to be. And it's his righteousness that you need. Each one of you here, me included. The only way we can stand before God, accepted by God, is in the righteousness of Christ. Clothed in him. And that is how you will be holy and without blame before God now and forevermore with an everlasting righteousness if you're trusting in Jesus and he is your righteousness Jehovah Sikenyu the Lord Jesus Christ your righteousness when you think of the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God I love this one I don't know who who knows R.C. Sproul he's now gone to be with the Lord he was a godly man a theologian he, I was listening to him one day on the internet and he explained things like this Adam and Eve, they were innocent before God. Not righteous before God, but they were innocent before God until they sinned. And we all know about that, don't we? Um, Adam and Eve, they sinned and that, that opened the floodgates of sin and we all come into this world with sin. But before Adam and Eve sinned, they were innocent before God. It was always conditional. Do this and you shall live. And sure enough, they didn't. Or they did the opposite to what God said. And they died. The thing is though, we who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have something much better than Adam and Eve ever had. We have the righteousness of Christ. We don't have to, we don't stand before God innocent because we're not innocent, but we have the everlasting righteousness of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so it is when God looks at you, dear Christian, he sees his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, you, your acceptance before God is in his beloved son. Washed in his blood, 
clothed in his righteousness. It doesn't get better than that. You can't say that about Adam and Eve. They were innocent, but that was it. Until they were guilty, of course. But we're righteous. We're an everlasting righteousness. And who can accuse us when it is God who justifies us? No one. And that kind of relationship whereby you are clothed and adorned in the righteousness of Christ. It's a, it's a relationship that will endure forevermore. And that is because it is an everlasting righteousness. Again, where righteousness means the opposite of sinfulness. Can you make the claim that you are acceptable to God in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Do you have that everlasting righteousness? Another one of these big questions. I keep asking you questions today, don't I? And again, you're not going to get any more serious questions than this. But you wouldn't come to this church to be entertained, would you? You kind of expect that you're going to get some serious questions heading in your direction. What else do we have in verse 24? We're on number five now. Um... We've had to bring in an everlasting righteousness. We're more than halfway through it now. To seal up the vision and prophecy. To seal up the vision and prophecy. This speaks of a time when all prophecy is fulfilled. Ultimately, all the Old Testament prophets and their words of prophecy, their predictions, point us to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his gospel. And let me just give you a flavour of these prophecies or divinely given predictions of things that will happen. The very first promise of a saviour came directly from God to Eve. Would you believe it? Eve, in the, th- in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the Garden of Eden. Let's have a look at that one. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The Lord speaking to Eve and he says and I will put enmity that's hostility I will put hostility between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. There's a lot of bruising going on there. A heel that's being bruised and a head that's being bruised. Well I don't know about you but I'd rather have my heel bruised than my head bruised. That's altogether a lot more serious, isn't it? If you're going to have your he- getting your head bruised. What does all that mean? The serpent's head is crushed and he can only strike at the heel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The striking of the heel was fulfilled at the cross after Jesus was arrested, unjustly tried, tortured and crucified and put to death perhaps Satan thought that he had defeated Christ but ironically the strike at Christ's heel would result in a death blow to his head to Satan's head and Satan's fate was sealed at the cross by his death by Christ's death at the cross he destroyed the power of him 
who uh, of him he destroyed him who had the power of death that is the devil so at the cross we see the striking of the heel of the Lord Jesus Christ but we see that death blow to Satan at the cross and it's there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 also we have we've got Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 which is a prophecy of Christ being born in Bethlehem of Judea, no less. And then there's Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, which was written again about 700 years before Jesus came into the world. And it tells us that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. That's in prophecy that the virgin would conceive and bear a son. It's not something that the New Testament writers made up. It was a fulfilment of prophecy. And there is so much more besides in Old Testament prophecy, including details of how Christ would be spat upon, how his beard would be plucked out, how he would be wounded for our transgressions, how he would be bruised for our iniquity, how the Lord, the Lord God would lay upon him our iniquities, if we trust in Jesus that is, and how he would have his hands and his feet pierced. That's in Psalm 22. How precise is that? They pierced my hands and my feet in Psalm 22. All of those prophecies are fulfilled and the Old Testament prophecies of God have the yea and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course it doesn't end there because there is still unfulfilled prophecy. What am I talking about now? Well, according to the Bible, Jesus is coming again and I'm waiting for that and I know others are as well. And there are people who say, even so, come Lord Jesus. And we wait for him to come again and bring this world to an end and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, where we will be delivered once and for all from sin and our God will be with us. And how wonderful that will be. But this as yet, it's, it's still to be fulfilled, isn't it? But we know we who believe the Bible, we know that the fulfilment of it is certain. It's just a matter of time. We don't know when, but we know it will happen. And again we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. So, with that in mind, the unfulfilled prophecy, Jesus coming again in judgment, not as a sacrificial lamb, but coming to judge everyone who has ever lived. Again, I speak to those who are still waving their fists towards heaven. Perhaps even saying, oh, I don't believe in all that rubbish. I don't believe in God. Are you going to still say that when you're standing before the throne of Christ and he's looking at you with eyes like flames of fire? And he can see into your heart and everything is laid bare before him. Every sin you've ever committed. <laughs> Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. 
Know him as your saviour from sin, your Lord, your God, and join that happy throng who say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Don't delay. Don't delay. Last thing we read in verse 24. We're getting there. And to anoint the most holy. That's the last few words in verse 24. To anoint the most holy. It speaks of anointing. An anointing of the most holy. And there are more than a few people who interpret that as an anointing of the temple in Jerusalem. And so I'm going to, at this point, I'm going to say, listen, I, and I've said it before, I don't claim to have a full understanding of prophecy. Uh, and even what I'm preaching on today, I, all I can do is read it, try to understand it, read it prayerfully, read some of the commentaries. They don't all sing from the same song sheet. They're not all saying the same thing. But I uh, just read these things, I read the Bible, read the commentaries, and I preach to you what seems to make the best sense to me. And um, what I would say to you, there are those who say that the, um, the most holy, to anoint the most holy, the most holy refers to the temple in Jerusalem. But what I would say to you there is, why would it be the temple in Jerusalem when Correct me if I'm wrong, but everything else we've considered up to now, the previous five things, have all been to do with Jesus. Everything that I've spoken about thus far has been about the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we're supposed to think that uh, the anointing of the Most Holy is the anointing of a building in the Middle East, in, in Jerusalem, in Israel. I don't believe that to be the answer to it. I don't believe it for one moment. To me, it makes far more sense to say that the anointing of the Most Holy means the anointing of Jesus. How about that? The anointing of the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes perfect sense when you appreciate that the name Christ means anointed. That's what Christ means, anointed. There was a time when Jesus stood up in a synagogue in Nazareth and he read from the prophecy of Isaiah, and I'm going to read this to you now, what he read. Jesus, when he was standing in that synagogue, the scroll was handed to him. And I'm going to read Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through to 21. Okay. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up for to read, and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he have anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He have sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives. That's deliverance from sin, by the way. And recovering of sight to the blind, those who are spiritually blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. To set at liberty, that speaks of forgiveness for sins. It all speaks of Jesus, the one who has been anointed in that prophecy of Isaiah. Of, yeah, of, of Isaiah. The Lord Jesus is the most holy. He was chosen by God. 
and he was anointed by the Holy Spirit for the great work that he came down from heaven to do. What was that? To save sinners. Everything that we've looked at this morning concerning the words that were spoken to Daniel by the angel Gabriel over 500 years before Jesus came down from heaven, it was all about Jesus. How wonderful and how comforting those words must have been for that godly man, that elderly saint, Daniel. Especially when you think that he'd been praying for nothing more than a return of the Jews to Jerusalem after their 70 years of captivity. In answer to Daniel's prayer, we've seen God in spectacular style taking Daniel way beyond the return of the Jews to Jerusalem to a time when God would reconcile rebellious men, women, boys and girls to a holy and just God, a holy and righteous God. And he would clothe natural born sinners in the righteousness of Christ. Surely, after hearing all this, there is no one in here, please don't tell me there's someone in here who will still not have Jesus to be his or her saviour from sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen.